You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment Level 1. And um, we're going, let me just give you a little bit of an overview of how this uh, is going to work. We are going to um, go over the curriculum for uh, the Level 1 training in three day longs. So starting today, every two weeks, there's going to be another one. Each day is divided into three two-hour segments. Uh, we'll have a segment from 9 until 11, and then from 11.15 until 1.15, and then from 2 to 4. Today, I'm going to have two uh, people co-teaching with me. Uh, one is uh, Laura Cosner, if you want to wave or introduce yourself. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and uh, um, say a little bit about yourself. <clears throat> um, I have been working with George for many years, probably eight years, I guess, at this point. Um, and I've gone through all of this work myself. I am a student of George's and of Shinzen Young, if you guys know Shinzen. Um, and I have gone through Shinzen's uh, coaching training program. So I'm, I teach mindfulness on my own. Um, I'm also an artist in my day job. That's what I do for a living. <laughs> So it covers all of the bases. Okay, good. <laughs> and then uh, Zach Oldenburg. Hello, everyone. I'm Zach. Um, I've been working with George for a number of years as well, and I do a lot of work with attachment. Um, I'm a student of Dan Brown's, and I'm also a therapist and really into psychoanalysis and early developmental sort of theories. <laughs> That's me. It's a constant battle between attachment theory and psychoanalysis. <laughs> I'd like to think that we're working together. <laughs> um, so what I thought I would do is uh, talk through the first segment and then um, I'm going to turn it over to Laura for the second segment and then to Zach for the third segment. So you get different points of view. This is a Socratic system of teaching. And so what that means is that we're very happy to answer any questions. Um, I would like you to use the little um, <clears throat> hand uh, to, uh, to raise, to ask the question, and you'll, you'll notice that it's under the reactions button at the bottom of the screen. Uh, so uh, there's a little tab that says raise hand, and you can raise your hand, and then we'll see, and we'll take them in the order that the hands are, are raised. <clears throat> Um, because this is a, a level one class, there's a lot of information that, that comes through. Uh, so at any point you have a question about it, uh, please feel free to ask and we're happy to answer it. Um, we take you through uh, a description of the uh, early development of attachment theory and then the meditative model for working with attachment theory. Um, or attachment disturbances might be a better uh, uh, description of that. Most of the time, people who come to this class do not have secure attachment, um, which may be alarming or surprising to, or, or, or maybe not. Um, and, uh, um, and I don't know actually where you uh, heard about it, but I'd like to give an overview of the, uh, of the, of the 
idea itself and then also the uh, an overview of the different kinds of approaches to work with it and then what we've landed on uh, at uh, metagroup um, it is a meditation-based class and so we we do work with meditation as the primary means of intervening uh, rather than a psychoanalytic or psycho uh, psychotherapy approach um, i I like the meditation approach. It's always worked well with me. And so we tend uh, to focus mainly on that. Um, we use a three pillars approach, which is developed by Dan Brown uh, at Harvard uh, with his group in uh, uh, Newton. Um, um, but it's a little bit different than the way that he normally frames it. At Metagroup, uh, I, I guess it's 12, or so years ago now began trying to develop a system to work with attachment. And we really developed a two pillars approach, which was a mentalizing training based on Vipassana meditation and a, uh, a psycho, uh, a, a, sorry, uh, a psychoeducation around uh, collaboration. In the three pillars approach that Dan had developed, there was a remapping of the early childhood conditioning uh, mentalizing training through therapy and a uh, um, collaborative uh, uh, an education around how collaborative relationships function. When we uh, initially did our work, I uh, went and did the adult attachment interview training, which is uh, the main assessment tool for attachment, uh, and began to uh, um, give the uh, AAI to everybody who came into the class because we wanted to see if we could validate that the class was actually working. And then we later collaborated with Dan on a study uh, comparing our two-pillar approach with Dan's three-pillar approach. And what we found was that the mentalizing training uh, uh, did improve people's capacity to mentalize and it in fact often put them at a level of mentalizing that was usually associated with secure functioning, but it didn't change the underlying attachment strategy uh, and the psychoeducation was useful and people could make their relationships function in a much more secure way but it, it didn't do the deep work of uprooting the original attachment conditioning uh, what we notice in um, uh, psychotherapy as an additive or as a, a means of working with uh, attachment repair is it doesn't tend to shift the, the basic native attachment strategy. It tends to add secure skills to, to the collection. And what I was really interested in was a, a program that we could uh, utilize for people that would actually do the deep work and shift the, the, the native attachment strategy into earned security. We talk about um, earned security rather than security because one of the dilemmas of attachment functioning is that you grow a, a brain that is based on your native attachment and the actual physical structure of the brain is different depending on what the native structure uh, is or, or the native conditioning is. So that even if you do go through this process of earning security, you still have the, the native brain that you had. And so in some sense, what we're talking about here is a software upgrade rather than a hardware upgrade. You still have the brain that you that you that you grew in relationship to the environment that you had, and you you've understood and developed a new way of operating it. But it still functions largely in in the way that it did before. <clears throat> Is that all making sense so far? 
Um, several of the things that uh, we focus on uh, in the meta vipassana approach, which is what I'm a, a teacher of, is the uh, intentional development of the, the capacity for positive experience. One of the things that we notice in people who have insecure attachment is that they have a, a, a pretty good capacity for processing negative experience, but they don't have much capacity for positive experience. Uh, one of the things about positive experience to understand is that it can be um, dysregulating in the same way that negative experience can be. So you have a positive, an intensely positive experience, it becomes dysregulating. And if you use afflictive strategies to regulate your emotions that were based in your family system, then an, an intensely uh, positive experience can cause the same afflictive response that you're used to from uh, difficult experiences. So uh, we focus on the intentional development of positive experiences as well as reducing the negative experiences. Another way to describe that is if you just reduce the negative experiences, it doesn't help with the positive experiences so that you have to do both. That's why we use a metavipassana approach where we're intentionally developing the capacity for positivity and at the same time reducing negativity. Um, we also use the meditation as a, a, a way of uh, developing mentalizing, and Laura's going to talk about mentalizing later today. Um, mentalizing is one of the ways in which you track what's actually happening. You understand how you make reality out of the experience of the present moment. That is to say, how you assign meaning to the conditions of the present moment as they arise. In the metagroup approach, this is uh, deeply embedded in Buddhist thought as well. So you have the object that can be sensed, meets the capacity to sense. When there's contact, consciousness of that sensing experience arises. It's evaluated, I like to say processing speed, but the Pali word is Vedna. Does it need urgent attention? Does it not really need attention? Is it pleasant if there's time? And then it's compared to the perceptual database. And depending on what uh, meaning uh, you store in your per perceptual database, that meaning is attached to the conditions of the present moment. And we want to be able to follow that whole process uh, so that if, uh, if we create these uh, uh, afflictive experiences of conceptual reality, we can go back and uh, re-examine it. The, the, one of my favorite Pali words is um, tajipanati, which means constantly checking that the conceptual reality you've created matches the conditions that are there. Uh, I'd like to say, have you ever misunderstood something? <laughs> have you ever acted on a misinterpretation of what was happening and uh, in an unskillful way caused the situation to become worse or, or actually... Uh, uh, you know, as the Buddha said, one expression of anger can uh, obliterate a thousand years of kindness. So uh, <clears throat> there's a website uh, called Things the Buddha Didn't Really Say, and I'm pretty sure that statement is on there, but uh, uh, I like to use them anyway. <clears throat> um, so uh, 
mentalizing is really important. We need to develop a capacity to mentalize. Laura will talk about that in terms of uh, uh, how your different attachment conditioning tends to affect your capacity to mentalize and what aspects need to be developed. Uh, um, because this is a meditation-based class and positivity is uh, so important, I usually like to start by uh, talking about that. Um, in uh, Asian practice, for instance, uh, we, we go or we have been in the past gone to Myanmar to sit with U Indigasayadao, who, who teaches uh, Metta Vipassana. Um, and teaches uh, metta as a concentration practice, metta jhana practice, he calls it. Um, obviously, because there's a civil war happening there now, we can't go. But um, to develop high concentration states uh, and at the same time develop a sense of positivity. Um, one of the aspects of uh, Eastern practice versus Western practice is that the initial practices are meant to separate the person's identification from the family group, which is more how they identify there uh, than the way that we do here, which is already so individualistic and separate. Most of us don't primarily identify with the, the, with the family group, we identify with our, our sense of self. Um, to come into a place of uh, forgiveness uh, around that uh, as a preliminary practice before going into developing the capacity for loving kindness. Oops, let me turn this off. I thought I had. Um, <clears throat> once we go into this uh, uh, piece about um, uh, uh, substantially focusing on positivity, then I'm going to give you an overview of the development of attachments uh, theory, and then we'll take a break at 11. Um, one of the things uh, that we know about uh, early attachment conditioning that leads to insecure or disorganized attachment, and, and uh, that will also be explained. Uh, I think you're going to do that, aren't you, Zach, this morning? Nope. What are you going to do? <clears throat> um, the third section. I mean, I, I could do that this morning if you'd like, but I wasn't planning to. What are you going to cover? Oh, I'm going to cover developing positive emotion, metta. I'm going to cover emotional regulation and how it relates to different attachment strategies. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so... I'll do the forgiveness piece. Um, one of the things that happens uh, in the development of uh, attachment is that your uh, caregivers respond to you in a way that either produces a sense of security or a sense of insecurity. You are, you're born, you're completely dependent on how they respond to you. And depending on how they show up creates either a sense of security or a sense of insecurity about your own capacity to get your needs met and also about how the world is likely to respond to you. So you're an infant, you're in the crib. Uh, I don't know if you've been around infants or you remember this, but as an infant, you can't even roll over. You can't sit up. Uh, you can't feed yourself. You can't change yourself. Really completely dependent on 
somebody responding to you in exactly the way that you uh, need in order to survive. We even have a built-in system where um, if we don't get care that's likely to lead to our survival, the system shuts down uh, and we go uh, into this kind of uh, shutting down that actually can lead to death. You call out to the world. Do you know uh, how infants call out to the world? What's the first thing that they do in order to get somebody's attention? They look as cute as they possibly can. Um, it's an instinctual thing. An infant, whenever they track movement, they smile reflexively. We as human beings see this reflexive smile and of course assume that they recognize us and they're smiling at us, but actually anything that moves, they will uh, produce this smile and they've actually studied it. And uh, it's at about 42 minutes after birth that the infant begins to make the first attachment requests by this big uh, inviting smile. But if nobody comes, they begin to look confused because they've indicated that they need care, right? With the big smile. And then if nobody comes, they whimper. If nobody comes, they intermittently cry. And if nobody comes, they cry. And if uh, nobody comes, they tantrum. <clears throat> By the time uh, a, a child is tantruming, there's been a whole raft of cues that have been missed by the caregiver. Uh, in order uh, to meet the child's needs. If nobody comes and the child is tantruming at a, at a certain tipping point, they'll go into uh, anaclyptic depression where the whole system shuts down and they become almost catatonic. That is a huge physiological change in the brain. And if you had a childhood where that happened to you, what you'll notice is that in ordinary situations that are emotionally intense, you can just completely shut down and withdraw from the world and it, it's automatic and you can't do anything to stop it. So uh, these are the kinds of indications that you have about the kind of care that you got. Um, <clears throat> turns out that the, the, the bar for secure care is really low. <clears throat> this is another thing that's often troubling for people. In the studies that Mary Ainsworth did, she found that a, a, a caregiver needs to respond in a good enough way to the needs of their infant 30% of the time or more in order for the infant to develop security. When you were in school and you got 30 on your test, what grade did they give you? So I'm going to say an F, right? So it's an, it's an astonishingly low bar, secure functioning. And so when you look at uh, the, the circumstances that a child must have faced in order to develop insecure attachment, you're looking at an extremely difficult experience for that child. So I just want you to put that in perspective. It isn't that you failed. In fact, you rose up and responded in an extraordinary way to extremely harsh circumstances in order to have survived that. And that, that's important to understand. But it also does tend to lead to, to a kind of anger because of the difficulties that 
insecure or disorganized attachment put up into a life. I'm using the term organized and disorganized. Um, and there are essentially five main types of adult attachment, which I'll just touch on briefly. There's secure, there's dismissing, there's preoccupied, there's unresolved uh, around loss and trauma, and there's complexly disorganized. People who are uh, organized, that is to say, people who are secure or dismissing or preoccupied do about as well as each other. There's different emphases on what they focus on in life, but they do just about as well. If you drop off into the disorganized and things go much less well. Um, and so that's an important distinction to make. One of the things that's exciting about being in the time that we are now, as I throw out all of this stuff about the difficulties there, are that, that this stuff is now repairable in a way that's never been true before. And so uh, it's useful now to understand what, what your conditioning is, because the, you can now take actions to repair it and come into a place of earned security. It's totally worth doing that because it is so much easier to be in that space of earned security than in the space of um, insecurity or disorganization. And it's, it is a, a, a reasonable amount of effort that pretty much anyone can do in order for that to happen. So it's not extraordinary in that sense. But if you consider that you were the little infant, the cute little uh, bundle of joy that uh, any uh, reasonable person would look at and adore, um, and at the same time, your caregivers did not respond to it, even that minimal level, that might produce a sense of frustration or anger. And so I like to start this process of healing uh, with uh, forgiveness practice. So depending on your orientation and how you hold the activity of blame, maybe you blame yourself for not actually doing well enough in those uh, extremely difficult circumstances, or maybe you uh, blame uh, somebody else for not doing it. Um, <clears throat> What often happens in, in family systems where the care isn't good enough is that uh, the care isn't good enough and the, then the reaction to the care not being good enough creates a, a, a difficult situation. Uh, and so at a certain point, the, the levels of, of um, negative action and consequence get so intertwined, it's hard to uh, pull them apart and make one person without blame and the other person fully encompassing of the blame. So we want to move through that and open to this possibility of healing and uh, beginning with this uh, forgiveness practice. So we teach it with three basic phrases. Forgive me, I forgive you, I forgive myself. Forgive me, I forgive you, I forgive myself. Are you all uh, familiar with uh, the, this practice? It's not actually an Eastern practice, it's a Western practice. Um, from, what, from the little a bit of digging around, I think it's a practice that developed up at Spirit Rock in Marin. 
uh, as a preliminary practice for metta practice, which we're going to spend a lot of time doing so we can develop that sense of kind, uh, open-hearted, friendly curiosity is kind of how I think of it. So um, it's simply a repetition of the phrase, forgive me, I forgive you, I forgive myself. It's not directed particularly at anyone. But what we want to do is embody the phrase, embody the, what the phrase means to us, and then to begin to track what arises in response to that. This is the nascent uh, development of mentalizing because you're tracking what's happening. Um, forgive me. This is an investigation of where you're holding responsibility or blame for yourself for actions that you might have taken. I forgive you is letting uh, everyone off the hook. Um, one of the things about holding people in a state of blame is that you have to hold the state. Um, another one of the things that is attributed to the Buddha that he probably didn't say is uh, holding on to anger is like uh, um, picking up a hot coal to throw at them, but uh, not expecting to get burned by the picking up of it or drinking poison in, in, in an attempt to harm someone else. So in holding blame, we uh, confine our consciousness into this uh, repetition of experience. We really are talking about freedom and we're talking about being able to function well in these three broad categories of our attachment conditioning, our capacity to explore and our capacity to collaborate in relationships. And we're gonna go uh, into uh, detail about all of these different things, but that's really the, the realm of uh, attachment. The attachment activation goes off and it compels you to seek proximity, actual physical proximity to somebody who will protect you. Uh, exploration is where the attachment mechanism is off and you're curious and interested in finding meaning uh, in uh, being alive. And then uh, the third is collaborative relationships. Without the third piece of collaborative relationships supporting you, it's very hard to explore to the, to the uh, to the full meaningfulness that you can discover through exploration. It's too difficult to really get out at the edge of, of finding meaning um, because it's so, it can be so emotionally uh, challenging to do so that if you don't have a group of people that support you, uh, you begin to limit your willing to, willingness to risk big exploration. And as you limit your own exploration, you limit the meaningfulness of life and you can limit it to the point that you're actually in despair about life being too difficult and not having enough meaning. Um, forgive me. I forgive you. I forgive myself. Sometimes when we're in pain or we're distressed or we're not thinking clearly, we, we take actions which are unfortunate and uh, we can get caught up in rumination about that. Is that making sense in terms of the instructions? I want you to sit in meditation. I want you to say the phrase and then allow the experience and then say the next phrase and allow the experience and to 
not direct what comes up in any way, but present and monitoring what comes up so that you can begin to get a sense of the landscape of how you hold uh, this activity. Any questions before we begin? So any comments or questions on the practice or in any of the information that uh, I've given you so far? Remember, if you could use your little hand, that would be useful. Ama? Uh, yes, thank you, George. I have a couple questions. Um, when you were talking about the difference between the software and the up, uh, hardware, uh, you went through the different kinds of therapeutic processes and the different models between Dan Brown's and the Meta Group. Uh -huh. um, is first of all one question: Is there a similar upgrade between the second, the two pillar, and the three pillar approaches? Um. <clears throat> The two-pillar approach in the study that we did did not change the underlying attachment strategy. Um, I knew that it wasn't working because uh, we weren't seeing the outcomes that we wanted. Uh, and so um, I began to look for uh, some other system or some other additive that we could uh, in, begin to include in, in the work that we did. Um, with Dan's three-pillar approach, the second pillar, the mentalizing training is done in therapy using what's known as a mentalization-based therapy. But I didn't want to develop a system that had to be practiced by clinicians only because the in our Western, in, in the US system of medical care, there isn't really any med medical health treatment for people who aren't resourced. Turns out that people who are resourced tend to be overwhelmingly secure and don't need the help, and that the people who are the most challenged are the disorganized people and they have the least resources. So I did not want to develop a system to help the people that, that was unavailable to help the people that needed the help most. And that's why we went uh, uh, with uh, meditation-based mentalizing training. It turns out that the, the meditation-based mentalizing training is more efficient than the um, um, mentalization-based uh, therapy anyway, according to our study, where the, the people who did the, the Vipassana meditation tended to score higher in mentalizing than the people who did the traditional three pillars approach. Is that answering your question? Yeah, and I'm, where I'm confused still is, is that, is the meta group now a two pillar or a three pillar approach? Oh, sorry, it's a three pillar approach. Okay, thank you. And the other question that I have is in the five different attachment strategies, there's secure, dismissing, preoccupied, disorganized. What's the fifth one? Unresolved to, for loss or trauma. Um, you can be secure and have uh, an a, uh, unresolved trauma that is dis... Um, it, we track this through uh, being able to describe a coherent narrative. Um, you can be incoherent around a tra traumatic event 
and still be secure, in, in, in which case you would be um, unresolved. Um, this goes to the, the description of the development of the system. Uh, originally, uh, it was a three-way uh, uh, three division, secure, uh, uh, anxious, ambivalent, anxious, avoidant in children, and then that became secure, dis uh, uh, preoccupied and dismissing in adults. But then they found that there was a group of, of, of people when they did the assessment that didn't fall into uh, any one of those three categories. And then um, they added the fourth category of unresolved around trauma and loss. But then they found there was still another group that didn't fit into that. And, uh, uh, and that was actually Eric Hesse and Mary Main up at Berkeley who then came up with the uh, designation of what they called cannot classify because they didn't fit into the others. But then what I, I tend to describe as complexly disorganized. And they're people that exhibit uh, all three of the, the main attachment strategies in one system. Uh, in the beginning, they, they uh, debated whether they should use the word uh, complex or they should use the word disorganized. And a disorganized one, and so that's why it has that, but I, I tend to think of it as complexity. One last remaining question is that, have you seen anywhere there is a shift in the brain that there's actually a hardware upgrade? Um, no, actually most of the stuff I'm familiar with is the other, that the brain stays basically the same. And what we're talking about here is the the integration between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, there's a, a cycle. Uh, the, the amygdala is the sympathetic nervous system. It relates through the parietal lobe the information to the hippocampus, which then is supposed to evaluate whether it's an accurate uh, alarm. And if it's uh, deemed an accurate alarm, it, it sends resources to respond. And if it's uh, thought not to be, then it, it signals the corpus callosum to settle the amygdala da uh, down. Is that making sense? So in secure people, that's kind of the ring of fire that happens. In insecure people, uh, it happens differently. Uh, dismissing people are hypoactivating of the uh, uh, sympathetic nervous system and hyperactivating of the parasympathetic nervous system. Preoccupied people, it's the opposite. They're hypoactivating of the sympathetic nervous system and hypoactivating of the parasympathetic nervous system. And in disorganized people, it is all over the map. Anything can happen. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why they're so uh, responsive and so difficult for them. Good enough. Uh, Tanya? Here. Um, so I had a question about this, the meditation practice we just did. Uh -huh. um, so you had said at one point, if anger is coming up to kind of shift from that, and I had anger coming up. So I wasn't quite sure about what, how to shift. So what I did was I kind of tried to embody each of the forgiveness phrases by feeling it in my body in mm -hmm. terms of like, you know, really feeling forgiveness. But I, um, so is that what kind of what you meant for us to do? Yes. Okay. Just shift away from the person or the situation that's causing the anger to arise to a different one. 
intentionally. So in some sense, you're suppressing or blocking that situation from arising and just allowing the mind then to go somewhere else. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm still a little bit confused. So like I had the anger, so things were coming up, you know, and I, and I was noticing certain emotions coming up and I had different emotions. And at the point where the anger came up, yeah, I was getting kind of fixated on it. So yes, yeah, so like I said, I try to drop back into my body and feel the feeling of forgiveness. Right. But there's, there's the cognitive aspect and also the uh, emotional aspect. And so uh, you can uh, either focus on a different emotional experience or you can focus on a different cognitive experience or both. Either uh, any one of those is good. And again, when you're saying the emotional experience, it could be because the, there's the emotion, there's sort of the feeling of feeling of forgiveness. But then there was also the emotions that were coming up when, you know, I was trying to do certain types of forgiveness. So, you know, like, like anger or sadness could come up, right? Um, how do you notice um, the, the state that you're in? Um, I... I can sometimes I'll, I'll, there'll be certain thoughts and then I feel the emotion in my body. Okay. So if you notice that a thought is driving anger or anger is arising, then you can either switch the thought uh, to change the emotional response, or you could intentionally focus on a different emotional experience. Either one is fine. Okay. And then again, what we're doing with this practice is noticing what's coming up emotionally, but then also really trying to, really do the forgiveness practice at the same time, right? Correct. Okay. All right. Thank you. Every time an experience arises, it arises in a working model, which is a just a series of gists that we hold around that. And so we're intentionally infusing forgiveness into the working model. And then when it's re-remembered, the forgiveness piece is embedded in that so that when we remember it again in the future, part of the way that we remembered includes the forgiveness. And so you do the practice over and over again until the, the places where you are stuck holding blame are infused with enough forgiveness that, that when they're remembered, the forgiveness piece plays at the same time. Bye now.